0: Welcome to Decolonization in Action, a podcast that considers how knowledge, medicine, science, and the arts are being decolonized today. My name is Edna Bonhomme, and I'm broadcasting from Berlin, Germany. Christina Comer and I took a long mid-season break to rest and manifest. I also spent this time completing my book manuscript, which I just submitted to Haymarket Books. The tentative title is Tending to Our Wounds, and it makes a case for reparations by using history, memoir, and a bit of journalism to think about how we can reckon with colonialism's past, as well as the ways in which anti-Black racism, debt, and memory is, works and operates today. I'll keep you updated about that project and others to come. In the meantime, I have a treat for this episode. This is Season 4, Episode 4 of the Decolonization in Action podcast entitled Everything for Everyone, where I was in conversation with Naukora Journal and I sat with Moritz Gansen and Sarah Marais dos Santos Bruce on a rainy afternoon in the neighborhood of Neukölln in Berlin. The conversation was originally recorded in the late summer of 2020 during the pandemic in a public garden sitting outside. Our discussion was met for a theory conversation loosely centered around the theme of the issue general public, and we planned to have this held at a public garden in Riksdorf, which was inspired by the work of the philosopher and educational reformer John Amos Comenius. Due to the closure of the garden for maintenance work, the discussion ended up taking place in a nearby beer garden. The Communist Garten, because it's a very peculiar and rather little-known kind of commons in Berlin, is a space that tries to address the general public with a particular focus on the neighborhood children, something following John Amos's Communist demand that everyone be taught everything, in its entirety, or with a view to the whole. Omnis, omnia, omnino ex colli. I hope you enjoyed this discussion.
1: We could start from the question of everything for everyone. I mean, my my first question was whether there is such a thing as a general public at all.
2: What I was thinking about when you were uh, talking about the co- communal garden yeah, yeah. was just that, like this this idea of having, yeah, like I'm not sure, but I also I, I haven't like thought it over, actually, but I'm not sure about this notion of everybody having to do everything. Like I do think that we live in a society of or in a community of people to sort of like, you know, distribute labor and all of these things and to sort of have, like, I don't, if I want to be doing everything by myself, that I can like live somewhere by myself in an isolated cave or whatever. And I thought that like the positive notions of living together in, in, in a community or in a society are kind of the facts that you don't have to like stem everything and you don't have to do all the. But at the same time, I, I realized how that very quickly like goes into distributing Identities with that that go with that labor or whatever. So that was just what I was thinking when you were talking about Comenius and his philosophy.
1: Yeah,
0: I think part of the difficulty of for me not For for me to say that I wouldn't want necessarily to be full Division of labor or is because so many people don't ever have access to anything Mm. and specifically to an education housing other forms of resources that giving people the possibility to, to just more and to have more, whether it's access to creative spaces, and just, because what, what, what kind of world we live in and imagine the world we live in, if plumbers could also be able to have time to paint, mm. if janitors were able to have time to make music and to be like, even if they weren't quote unquote good at it and professionals at it, that we were given the space within societies to actually, Um, reach our creative potentials, our potential to build things together um, and not always be uh, pigeonholed into certain kinds of roles just because, well, I just quote-unquote happen to be good at this thing or that thing and therefore I'm only going to be a writer or I'm only going to be a plumber or whatever that might be. And so I I like the idea and the possibility of being quote-unquote able to do anything, everything, or at least have access to it so that we don't get fall into a trap of specialization and, in and, and many cases, segregation of people mm. and the roles that they end up having. So, so that's where I, I would be coming from when I think about something for everyone <laughs> or I that think, everyone should have access to everything.
1: And I think that's a lot of what this garden is about sort of uh, also, kind of, who are the people and the children who come here to learn and to, to learn together as well um there there people who are who in a different part of the city might never uh, end up in an institution sort of outside of the school Mm -hmm. that would offer some kind of learning uh, but a a type of learning that from what i understand is precisely not the kind of institutionalized school learning but but a a form of i don't know it's kind of a a romantic way of of thinking of uh, lifelong learning Mm -hmm. or, or also some Holistic ideas learning, which are, I mean, there are all kinds of problems, I guess, with the, with the kind of humanism of it. But at the same time, on a sort of practical political level, this is, I think this is a real commons within within this kind of city. I mean, of course, with, you have to know about it. Like, I guess each of us in different ways had seen it, but never been inside. Uh, although it's quite easy, but you have to press the buzzer and you have to know that you can press it. You have to know that you're allowed to go in. In a way, the threshold maybe allows for it to maintain this kind of status as a common space, which is kind of weird,
0: probably. When I think about spaces that are green within the city and who has access to it or how people use it collectively or individually, Temple Hawk is such a layered... A historically rich space that for me is located by the yeah. history of you know from the nazis to the americans but even with refugees and you know people who are coming from the middle east north africa or at the african continent as well having a complicated relationship with that space as an institution but then it's also a public space that people can access to have their grill plot and picks and uh, there's a beer garden and yeah. but yeah at the same time i find the park the prospect park in brooklyn the intermixing between groups of various religious, ethnic, racial categories is far more apparent in Brooklyn than here. I feel like here there's these like parallel lives that people are living, mm. that they see each other from the outside, I and mean, there could be this semblance that somehow the public is multi-ethnic, multi-racial, and quote-unquote tolerant, but yet there's this veneer that i see of, Parallel separation and parallel segregation in the in the German slash Berlin context of like temple health,
2: temple health um as a kind of microcosm and that's a German problem in general I think because uh, I mean I grew up in South Africa and it was just like so apparent I mean it's not it's not even the case that people weren't racist or that people weren't you know like people were blatantly racist and they were like blatantly terrible but uh, the the alone the fact of the matter that people were constantly in like you know white people had to constantly engage with black people and and it was like and and with with other people of color and it was just like it was constantly an issue like you couldn't not talk about race and even if the discussions were problematic then it was at least you know your people were talking about it every day and it was just sort of like a topic and here everybody sort of just pretends that it's not a topic and that it's uh kind of everything is good because we have so many muslims or whatever living in for example Berlin and at the same time it's i think it's like really apparent especially during the pandemic it's again become like really apparent how these people are very often like many people are just not considered citizens by the majority of society and like for example when that virus broke up out in that uh, meat factory, factory yeah <laughs> like and and people kind of said oh well the virus hasn't spread to society and it kind of made very obvious that the romanian romanian workers in that meat factory were not considered part of society you know even though they like sort of pro- pro- provide the type of essential services that are um kind of putting food on bougie people's tables, you know? And I think that's also kind of where my hesitancy with this everything for everybody comes from, because I feel like access is so often not enough. And it's very often like, you kind of say like, oh, but this is accessible to everyone. Like the internet was supposed to be that space that is sort of accessible to everyone. And then in the end, you still have like certain voices that are so much louder, certain, and it's like, yeah. I mean, of course people can go online and sort of find out about a lot of, like educate themselves and all of that, these things, but in practice very often like, it's, it's a little bit more complicated.
1: I think those are different things I mean, this this accessibility of the internet and, and truly having access to the internet as part of a, an education like a media competency, whatever are different things and, and precisely to have this access that's beyond the sort of loudness or whatever, the noise of certain groups on Facebook is the actual challenge of, of providing equal access, mm-hmm. like most people just don't know how to use each other or, yeah.
0: or they to. don't have like a computer, like my mom yeah, mother, obviously. for example, my mother and my father are immigrants from Haiti and uh, their generation of people who migrated to the U.S. in the 70s and 1980s were, they do not know how to use a computer, they don't have a computer at home. My mother just got a smartphone about a year ago so that she can communicate with me here without having to go to a call center mm. and, um, and on and on and on. And what actually what's been interesting about the COVID crisis is that uh, she's an essential worker, a janitor at a hospital, but because there aren't gatherings uh, like for churches or whatever else and synagogues and uh, mosques in the U.S., people are now to their religious services online. And so or other kinds of meetings online. And I was like, wait, mom, how do you see these kinds of services? She's like, well, actually it's on the YouTube. YouTube passes through her her or uh, television. So mm. television has actually, if you're in the US context, given people of my mother's generation who don't have a computer, who don't have a computer, access to the internet in a way that wasn't possible like five, 10 years ago, mm. uh, cause, and, and that her digital literacy is not you it's not unusual for black working class migrant people who don't um have access always to certain resources or a physical computer um or just at a certain point because of the other traumas that you have had to deal with of migration and forced um, dealing with authoritarian regimes it, it requires kind of letting go of certain aspects of trauma before you can get to the point when you, fit, even when you have the physical material yeah. to um, be able to use that digital space.
1: What's your experience with doing work online in terms of response and who are the people who listen to it?
0: Uh, for the current decolonization of yeah. action podcast? It's been interesting because I was Doing podcasting before the um, pandemic broke, and either participating in other people's projects and, or uh, doing my own. And what I found in terms of the production, it's been quite easy to do it online and keep it socially distant through yeah. online mm-hmm. platforms and digitally recording that way or through voice notes. And in some ways, it, it forced me to connect with people who are in like South Africa, like my and from Zimbabwe and from. Mm-hmm the philippines and uh forced myself to be more international to get this perspective at the same time i've also seen where uh people are listening because if you you can look Mm. at the algorithms to see okay where are people um, viewing it's not viewing but listening to the podcast and it's all over the world actually mm. um, surprisingly it's not a lot like but it's you know, brazil it's the philippines uh india it's lovely uh, and i can see it pop out the most most of the people are listening in europe and north america but it, it does pop up elsewhere and I, I think that 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 actually shows and is a testament um, to the power of the internet, actually, even despite the limitations. Um, like, I would agree with you, it's not accessible to everyone, yeah. but there are so many people who um, are trying to make it work mm. for them, and especially if they can't travel here, yeah. <laughs> if they can't come to Europe, because Fortress Europe makes it like, virtually impossible for mm. people from some parts of the African continent of the working class, of like, um, refugee uh, or asylum-seeking status.
2: Yeah.
1: And do people ever sort of uh, send you emails or get in touch in some other way to to discuss things that you've been talking about? For yeah. the people? podcast,
0: yeah. not really. Yeah, well. <laughs> surprisingly, I get contacted from other things like Twitter for yeah. not anything to do with podcasts because Twitter is another world. So that's yeah. like you were alluded to that <laughs> sometimes people have a loud voice and then things go back and
2: forth. And be a battlefield Yeah, but one you don't want to retreat from as well right i mean as you were saying i also think that there is so much posi- you know there's so much positive possibilities with the internet but yeah it's also like a, a question of having the energy try and be louder sort of quiets other voices or other problematic uh, infrastructures or that sort of challenges them in a way
0: mm-hmm. well for some people too it's the internet or so, some social media platforms are far more democratic than publishing houses, hmm. than magazines and newspapers, than academic Absolutely. universities. And the I which is, it's been interesting where I have like this, I don't, I don't know how y'all engage with some forms of social media, but there are people who I've never physically met, who I've become mm. friends with when I call with on social media, because they're doing amazing work around yeah. like Afrofuturism or around podcasts or, um, or I read their work and I'm like, wow, like there's this one doctor, black woman, um, who's based in Brooklyn, and has been doing wonderful research on HIV AIDS in New York City and after COVID was also like, um, a leader in uh, writing about this in the New York Times and other places. And I was just like, I followed her, she followed me back, and I was like, I really admire her work. And she was like, Me too, Do I admire you as well. I was like, Oh my God. Like, it was like black girl magic. <laughs> so, like, I think if there, is, there are those possibilities that I love because other, like, if it weren't for social media, me seeing and then people maybe accessing each other in these different ways, um, it's not like if I, reached out to a New York Times editor, they're not gonna, they're not gonna talk to me.
2: <laughs> it's like, I have nothing to offer them.
0: They're not gonna talk to me because that, that, those institutions already have a system in place where they're gatekeepers. They only really, you don't have, if you can't offer them something, why would they promote you? You know, if Absolutely, you are an yeah. expert in a particular way that appeals to them, why would they answer you? Um, and so looking and thinking about those hierarchies within the context of how social media could be democratizing is also something that I think, or that I find interesting.
1: Mm-hmm. Very interesting this question of institutions actually because I think all of us have some uh, relationship towards
0: institutions. I mean,
1: you have been a fellow at the Max Planck, right?
0: Mm-hmm. Yes, so until right. December 2020. Ah, it's still, it's yeah, still going it will on. will end.
1: Okay. <laughs> uh, you have a job.
0: <laughs> Indeed.
1: <laughs> at a university, uh, I don't have a job at the university right now, but I have a, I don't
0: know. I have you a have your own a, institution. <laughs> yeah, yeah,
1: but that's that's one reason also why I want to talk about this. Um, I am I'm affiliated to some institution that's affiliated to to a university. I'm applying for university jobs, yeah. but at the same time. Um, this institution which is a part, no, which is probably the reason actually why we're all here because Anastasia uh, met us through Diffract and I met you through Diffract. When we started thinking about it and it was really all out of opportunity basically. There was no premeditation. We want to build an institution, but rather we had this, or there was this space that uh, had been a publishing house space for a long time before. And some of us had been working with that publishing house and uh, they moved somewhere else. And then um, we thought, okay, we don't want to give up this space because it's been a space for theory and and theoretical production uh, for such a long time. Maybe we can do something interesting with it. And we had this kind of uncommon problem, I guess, that we had a space but no, no real idea what to do with it or no. Collective yet, so we we started to uh, To invent something basically which was diffract and I mean we we assembled some people and then uh, Decided okay, we're gonna call this thing diffract and this is what we want to do and so on Um, And it was I think a relatively conscious decision at least for me and I uh, Told Sarah about this before that it should be neither a space too closely connected to the university nor a space too closely connected to the art world because that's kind of where theory happens right now, if it happens at all. I keep thinking about whether this was an exclusion that was kind of maybe too quick, especially where art is concerned. But at the same time, it's also like we never entirely cut ties either way. I think we're always, almost all of us are, implicated in the university in some way. All of us have, or all the people who who are part of the Diffract Collective have studied something at some point. Uh, Some are still there, some have finished their PhDs and whatever. Uh, So we've gone through that institution. And many of us have also ties to the art institutions that are out there. But um, I guess in that sense it was still something against those institutions but still with a kind of institutional structure partly for practical reasons to get funding and so on and i keep thinking and arguing with people whether institution as a thing in itself as a concept can be used in emancipatory or whatever way whether it's inherently problematic and we always corrupt you if you <laughs> enter <laughs> okay. it and, and whatever and i don't know
2: I think we mustn't pretend that we live outside of capitalism, right? I mean, obviously it's a flawed concept, but I, I I feel very, like, I'm very aware of the flaws of the university and, like, how even the most radical knowledges are appropriated in the university and all of these things and how it's, like, you know, and uh, the, but I but I still see so much. I, I love teaching because I just love this moment when, like, kids... Or, young adults suddenly realize like, oh, this you know, they, they kind of have this moment where they where they realize how theory applies to their life and how it's like, and that was actually like the moment where I realized that where a lot of my anger growing up as a as a young girl kind of sort of became doothed a little bit because I suddenly realized that it was like not like engaging with feminist theory for me was just like a moment where I was like, oh, wow this is actually not all like some bundled up weird feeling that you have inside but it's actually like something that is embedded into the infrastructures that you live in right and it's and it's so incredibly and I'm like I'm, I'm very very thankful to the university for giving me that moment and I hope to pass it on to as many young people as possible at the same time of course um yeah institutions are terribly flawed they are involved in
0: capitalist system of production. I, yeah, I agree, we unfortunately live under <laughs> capitalism and it is ubiquitous and in this world. At the same time, I, I think I would push against something you said where it's about um, universities and art spaces being the site of theory, because um, it assumes that theory can only happen or mostly happen amongst intellectuals when I would say not, in <laughs> fact, if be anything, people outside of uh, academic or formal institutions are very theoretical and I see them exercising theory Particularly when I think about black feminists and black women in my family or even those who have no uh, relationship to me. They are exercising theory in a kitchen, in the fields, in the ways that they connect with the earth, um, how they see the stars, the heavens, whatever else. And it may not get recognized as such because of how classism operates and overemphasis on, on pointing to and looking to intellectuals as uh, bearers of knowledge, information, and politics where uh, there there hopefully could be more ways of thinking about um, where theory lies. And the work of uh, Chakanexa Huanga who is a, a professor from Zimbabwe who looks at African philosophy and the ways in which philosophy and african genius actually can be found in in informal spaces and for him the african laboratory is the kitchen it's a a kitchen in which you are or one can experiment um very heavily and i I would i would even yeah go beyond that and just to to say that yeah berlin is a funny one because it's a place where people are coming from so many different places there was one person who who was helping me build a kitchen and he's from Iran and in Iran he was an engineer but when he came here his degree wasn't recognized because the German state was like doesn't fully transfer except that technical and he he was just like uh, so instead of restarting that whole thing he was like well I guess I'll just be a carpenter and that was his process of reckoning with Eurocentrism and higher education and the hierarchies that are created even when people have a a formal education but I think like for me thinking about where can theory exist outside of the (laughs) these formal spaces and institutions like even whether it's through diffraction etc is important think about yeah how it gets exercised and with who and based on their background or not
2: but I think that to some extent, that's why the like I was so drawn to Diffract, I guess, because on the one side, I, like I really enjoy this this uh, non teleological kind of like not output oriented way of doing things, because the university is obviously so output oriented, and and uh, and it's kind of like this, and I do feel that the Jason C, if I may call it that, to uh, to a lo- sort of like formal education, or whatever that might be. Uh, but at the same time, kind of, I just really love those spaces where where you kind of pretend you're doing like formal education stuff, and then you just go ahead and, and do whatever the fuck you want, basically. And you just like invite the people that you find interesting, and you kind of like talk to people that you feel uh, have a have something to say, and all of these things. I think that's like really marvelous, and I think that's like a good way of appropriating that space, that like sort of intro. And you can, I mean, you can call it art, you can call it like university adjacent whatever but in the end carving out a space for something that is not entirely marketable in, in like a classical sense and that's quite lovely i think
1: but it is i think uh also in relation to what enna said it it is a danger that this is just a sort of uh, illusion that we can create a space Mm. that is precisely like what you're describing but at the same time it is actually just part of the machine because of course you can go in there Uh, learn something, get some cultural and academic capital and move on back into the other spaces where you can then Do the thing that's that you're supposed to do There, I think I mean for defract right now at least from what it's right now I think my greatest hope is that maybe if it's that uh, that it still can contribute to changing the way the institutions work in some way because the people are still not necessarily the ones who, who make a straight career within the institution.
0: This is the problem of any kind of institution yeah. even if it's like trying to challenge the, the ones that we most recognize and so far that at least when one forms a collective base, and space is so important mm-hmm. that, well, you need capital in order to maintain that space, mm-hmm. to pay the rent, <laughs> to to ensure that people have, um, the lights are on and it goes on and on. And in some cases, people often try to seek out funding so that if there are guests who come, that they, they get compensated for their time, or if there's residencies or all kinds of things like this. And the, the entire world that we're built on then becomes this thing in which it requires some form of labor, um, value, capital, exchange. And and I think that that is something that one has to reckon with or a collective has to reckon with. And then beyond that, it's like, okay, then how do you use the time and space? There's a British collective, I forgot their name, but they've been focusing on anti-work. So just like Mm -hmm. not doing any work and not being productive in a way that I think and i i'm guilty of this as well i think i'm my my worst own neoliberal subject of always working yeah. and I, I work so much <laughs> like i don't sleep and I'm just like work 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 and that that in itself has to be challenged amongst mm. people who are artists activists uh, theorists writers whatever people whatever identity one might have to have even if it's seen as like cultural work or creative work like that is labor, and, that's, and and doing it all the time without rest is part of what capitalism wants. And so this is also something that uh, when developing collective spaces that people have to acknowledge, like how do we engage in, a, in an ethics of anti-work and an mm-hmm. ethics of rest and ethics of care, and putting that into place while also making room uh, for Know, people, various ethnic, uh, racial, uh, other oh. identities to be involved, class backgrounds to be involved. It's, it's. I think it's a tough question. outside yeah. uh, of just like,
2: oh, theoretically, what do we want? No, but actually, how do we do this? Yeah. <laughs> it's also super antagonistic, right? Because mm-hmm. on the one hand, you have like exactly what you're saying, right? You kind of want to form, you want to create a, something that is outside of the monetary sort of infrastructure, and at the same time, that means that you'll be exploiting or that there will be self exploitation at the very least and the exploitation of others who you invite for a meager yeah as you were saying um on the other and but that's like the the paradox of it on the other hand if you're in, in an institution i'm in an institution that has theoretically has funding for a certain amount of things and um i get to sort of invite people and all of these things and uh i'm i'm really hoping that i could use the funds that i have to like To actually just pay people who are not being paid, Mm -hmm. (laughs) and um, and at the same time you kind of have these like these sort of politics of you know okay you need like one or two. Star speakers or whatever, and then uh, for the project to be validated, even within the university itself. Like even though there are funds and everything, you kind of you can't just like go about it and say, "Well, this is what," because you have this production of value that has to be there in the end. And you have. To.
1: But, but is that actually true, or is that like just the the fantasy that you that yeah. you have of the of the duty towards the institution?
2: Um. Good question. I think, like, I mean, I think, of course. In theory, I could probably... But I don't know. I think, like, if I, if I would only invite uh, people who do no, quote-unquote, theoretical work at all, in mm. as it is, like, framed in the eyes of the university, and, like, because, for example, we're planning, like, a lecture series and things like that, and then uh, if that lecture series were to be... I mean, yeah, of course, it's also my own, like, anxieties about performing and all of these things that, mm. that play into that, so... Um, and like sort of being kicked out of the inner circle, <laughs> absolutely. Um, but it's okay to be outside the circle. Like I, I, I think it's a
0: good question of: Do you does one necessarily have to have the big stars and or other academics mm. in order to ha- continue a project within a university setting? Like mm. one of the things that I glad that I was able to do in my institute is say start a podcast and podcast form it does not count for any form of tenure or academic mm. merit in any shape or form it does and the people who I invite I have invited have been transgender refugees migrants uh, people without PhDs people who mm. don't have a formal education and I and I I, I see them as experts <laughs> and I've, I put I give them a the platform it took Two seasons for someone to recognize that. <laughs> <laughs> to recognize that I was like, oh yeah, everyone's been yeah, That's g- weird. gender queer, like POC, like what? And then they're like, oh, let's see what she's doing <laughs> because. But did you do it on purpose? Yeah. Okay. I but didn't tell it wasn't that I was something doing. that just happened. Okay. <laughs> oh, of course not. I, I knew what I was doing, and I was committed to doing that because of the, me wanting to democratize and to give space Mm. to people who are often left out of the curriculums Mm. of university, Um, you know, syllabi, as well as within the European academic institutions. They're so white. I I thought the U.S. was bad, then coming here, I was like, what the fuck, like, (laughs) I should not be the only one. And so I think that, like, it it doesn't benefit, it doesn't work for, like, long-term my career to do this work, but it feels far better mm. <laughs> it makes it more interesting and colorful like I'm just like I feel a lot more satisfied um, doing this, the things that I do on my own terms
1: when we started we started also I mean again with reference to what was happening in the universities and in art spaces mm. and where theory was mainly performed by males mm. especially in the university and especially if you look at philosophy departments mm-hmm. there I don't know the numbers right now, but I'd say 80% male normally. In Berlin, actually, the free university is a great exception right now. But Anyway, Um, so in the very beginning, we we started to make sure that we have no all-male panels and that we try to sort of have at least as many non-males as males and so on. Um, And then at some point, we realized, okay, we don't have to count anymore. Actually, right now, we've been inviting far more women than men in the past, uh, I don't know, months and probably even years, um, which is quite a, quite interesting because we didn't think about it anymore and it kind of just happened. So there was a, I don't know, change in the dynamic or whatever, I don't know what, what precisely happened. It was interesting to observe that.
2: But I also think that it can really become something that you sort of internalize because mm. like it's just something that you automatically drift to when you feel like okay i want to do work that is or at least i've i've also realized kind of the same thing that when when i think about like okay i want to invite theor- people people who are doing theory but who are like not universalizing or who are not kind of pretending that academia is this politi- this this apolitical space or whatever, I automatically uh, drift to women and, and, and BPOCs, basically, you know? It's yeah. kind of like, you, you, when you're kind of thinking about, okay, what do I want them to talk about? And then and they're like, no, ma- most, like, German or, or most white philosoph- male philosophers will not talk about the body as something that is, like, situated or or, or specific or, or, like, you know, they will not talk. So it's... It's it's almost like a self cancel you know, sort of cancels itself out. Like I'm not going to invite certain people just because they don't sort of talk about the things that I find interesting or that are like so it's so it's actually both. It's also the, the question of theory in itself, the way I, I understand it and and like a politics of, of not wanting to invite one, white men. But yeah. <laughs> at least not predominantly. I have nothing against white men, strangely enough. <laughs> well part of I think part of the problem too is
0: that many well not Hashtag not all white men, but, <laughs> but a lot enough won't even consider or think about women, people of color, people from the global south. They're, they're not, many of them aren't actively like having that vision of what does it mean? to have people sit at a table that actually represents the makeup of the world mm-hmm. in a full sense because and this is why i hate the term minority i'm like in the u.s conference oh minority. i'm like, oh, minor-. I'm like yeah, yeah. i am not my minority. people are not a minority globally <laughs> we are not a minority yeah. and so it's just it's, it's interesting because like we're forced sometimes to think about and to cite and to work with um white cis heterosexual men but they don't they don't think about me <laughs> like mm-hmm. i have not a vision of genius when, when I ask, I like to ask people, um, when I say genius, who do you envision in your head? Usually people envision Einstein, you know, and, and that's. And they don't even know what
2: he did. Like,
0: <laughs> well, uh, we've learned a lot about Einstein in the Literally. US context. Is, and he was also at Princeton, where I went to school for my PhD. Um, and that's where he ended up after having to you know, leave Germany. So it's interesting to be, be here in the place that he was forced to leave when in Princeton, where I was also at. He found refuge in the forest. He found refuge in like walking through the Institute of Advanced Studies, and where I also like kind of spent some time and uh, walked around and cycled and ran through the forest. Um, and then coming here and just kind of seeing the the, the ghosts, <laughs> since the, there's things haunting um, this land and this space, uh, uh, it, it is interesting. I'm like, how how did that that one genius that people have in mind? Um, Lived through, engaged in a space like um, Berlin and Germany, and eventually ended up in a settler colonial state like the U.S. <laughs>
1: yeah. Does the does the matter the the concept of genius matter to you?
0: It matters to me in the sense that there, since the Enlightenment project, if, if you think about how Enlightenment thinkers, whether it's Immanuel Kant, if you think about Montesquieu, Didier Rousseau, et cetera, Carl Linnaeus, who had a range of um, expertise, some were philosophers, just that, and with Linnaeus being a taxonomist, biologist, that they had a vision of the world in which they saw and envisioned themselves as Europeans, um, at the upper echelon of intellectual and quote-unquote rational thought. And, you know, the critique of reason within that speaks of the absence of rationality of black people or, you know, a more offensive term to um, use, and a way that suggests that black people, African-descendant people don't have the capacity to think, to function, to learn, to grow. And so, for me, it's not just a question of like this abstract notion of genius in which it's inclusive but to say that um, if we want to we do have actually as uh, for me as an acting descended person the capacity to have reason and but not just reason but to be able to move be between so many different worlds and always translate and think and be compassionate while you know existing in the skin in a way that makes uh, the kind of enlightenment project for me deficient <laughs> mm. so i i would say that that lack of humanity on their part when in fact they thought that they were doing much more than that and creating that universalizing project uh was was um yeah it was insufficient and of course people have written about this like you know cesare and Hannah rent and making connections between the enlightenment project and fascism and slavery and colonialism mm. Um, you know, Adorno and Hoa as well with um, their, their work. And even more recently with Ashila Namembe's uh, uh, Critique of Black Reason, uh, where he like points directly to that enlightenment project as well. So the, the work is there and then it gets done. And I think that for me, the, the notion of genius can be a productive site and particularly genius when it is tied to African descended people the challenge the centuries ongoing Mm. experience of slavery colonialism and just abject uh, just abject discrimination because we do have that capacity and yet it is somehow taken away from us um, Mm. by the European intellectual projects
1: partly asking because I feel like my sort of kind of historian of philosophy whatever it is Mm. I'm doing uh, has been or I feel like it's been precisely the dismantling of genius, and sort of trying to to uh, trace all the translations that that produce this kind of uh, semblance of genius, that are the, the, the kind of image of genius, but that in fact are sort of collective work, basically uh, that condition that, that there are conditions of possibility of this semblance of, or this, this appearance, this. Uh, whatever, this effect of genius, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's kind of interesting, because it, it kind of, at the same, I think it it, it both can work together with the decolonial project mm-hmm. as the same time as potentially opposing it, because, of course, it would also dismantle this potentially um, empowering, Moment of, of reappropriating genius mm-hmm. that has been denied for centuries, as you were saying.
0: Yeah, and I actually I'm i I'm, I'm very supportive of projects that are collective, both intellectual otherwise through labor, etc. Like redist- redistribute the wealth, redistribute the intellectual spaces, and make universities truly accessible as like a place where anyone of uh, various social backgrounds, economic classes can access that unequivocally and I by me pointing to uh, African genius or African descended genius it's in some ways an extension of Movembe's work and Mufonga's work who I mentioned earlier but it's also to um and it's but it's it's also not trying to do the respectability politics that sometimes Mm. people talk about because that I want to shy away from but really to just like point out that a we There's so many black intellectuals who have existed and don't get cited, who don't get recognized or get recognized Mortem. like Ida B. Wells, who was a Black American writer journalist, got a Pulitzer Prize 90 years after her death. <laughs> 90 years after her death, she was just like, like "Thanks for that." Yeah, thanks. She's she's in her grave right now. Um, but like she was doing such amazing work around abolition, anti-lynching, prolific um, writer. Like ran out of town by the Ku Klux Klan. Just like I can't even imagine. Like you know, it's like fighting Nazis all the all day, all the time. But she was doing that, and again, recognize post and so I guess the ideal of this like collective intellectual um, kind of equalness is what we should be striving for and in many ways that's what the project I would want to be part of the bounce then is to say okay how do we Acknowledge that past, How do we correct it, and how do we empower the people? This is the thing that I'm trying personally. I'm trying to work through as a decolonial practice, but as like I also get to know the intellectual traditions mm-hmm. and languages of people who aren't European.
2: Yeah. but it. I think that's that's like exactly the the point where it gets so so intr. Where it's like such an intricate problem because on the one hand you kind of like we end up with only black and people of colour kind of doing that work. I was at the Transform Festival and, and there was this guy uh, who was kind of saying like, you know, I have to know Kant and, or- and Hegel and all of these yeah. things uh, to do my work on Cezanne and etc. 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 and to actually be able to talk about the things that interest me and be taken seriously and uh, like, especially for Highly meditated people, uh, uh, for, especially for people who are black, even more than, than POCs. I don't know if you have an answer to this, but like, how much of it, like, is this, this how, how pro- or not how productive? Because I understand that it is like productive for communities and individuals and things like that, and, and, and like you were saying, uh, for, for uh, the actual ability to be able to see oneself as a, a human with with reason and all of these things. But I wonder how much. Like I I always wonder about like how much of it can really happen through through this type of more or less peaceful educational work in a sense, you know, and how and, and because in the end uh, the people in the positions of power will not go lightly or will not go quietly. And sort of, uh, it can't be peaceful. This (laughs) is why people are toppling statues and burning shit down. Like,
0: at the end of the day, it can't happen through proper, polite emails or, um, even statements or even
2: like theory reading groups, right? (laughs) Absolutely not. I don't, I don't see,
0: I I am very skeptical of academic institutions being reformed from within Mm. without there being a complete restructuring and perhaps just demolition of some of these spaces because at the end of the day many of them especially those in Europe and North America either in the North American context built on stolen land and with the labor and free labor of black people and profiting from that that there are slave quarters at Princeton Universities, or what used to be slave quarters that got turned into student dorms you know this is this is a real fact and even here if we think about the names of institutes Max Planck Institute Max Planck why is it named after him like if we think about like the Nazis actually had him in charge of the Wilhelm Kaiser Society which is what it was called beforehand and the fact that he, they were okay with him meant that he was okay with them. <laughs> like there are people who love and there are people who stayed, and he yeah. stayed. Um, or you know Alexander von Humboldt, a colonial, in my opinion. Uh, you know, you, and and Robert Koch experimented on people. Like it's just you know it can go on and on, whereby the idea, the names that have been normalized. Even in German society where people are like, oh no, but that's the British, that's the French, that's the Americans. I'm like, well, but look at your own people. Yeah. Look at your own people and you will see that these academic institutions are built off of the the labor, the, the bodies, the experimentation, and the complicity of colonialism, racist, eugenicists and it goes on and on and on and so for me there is, it's going to have to be a violent way of dealing with this and I'm, I'm, I'm shocked that it's, it's actually a bit too peaceful in the German context for people not the, the ways that people do either not either they don't challenge it um, explicitly or there's not enough of us like I'm not even from here I'm, a, I'm an angry whatever <laughs> like I'm just angry um, and I don't have um, like yeah this is not my home but uh it's my temporary residence but it's it's not mine so i if i started burning shit down then i would i would be deported, <laughs> I <wouldn't> be deported.
2: <laughs> they, they probably already want to deport yeah, me but I, yeah but i wonder if uh, a lot of other people uh who are from here but have like I, I think that a lot of people who are who are from here and live here uh have the same sentiment Yes, of course. Of and I course. think that um that there is such a like general norm about POCs, black people not being part of the German culture that that they are just like, you know, that you just kind of don't feel like this is yours anyways. Like I mean, even my my mother has lived here for so long and she's like <laughs> she's I mean, she's uh yeah she has like absolutely no engagement with germany at all like she's she's completely apolitical but i also think to some extent because she's not like she's just not addressed as as a political being basically and and she's like not and i think there's so many people in germany who live that way especially when they like don't have access to knowledge and to education and to all of these things mean, you like kind of um there are so many people who just don't feel addressed by the system at all for so many people agency is something that just comes with collectivity and with like, I don't know, yeah, with like a moment where you feel... Like you can only start acting politically when you actually feel like you can change some, something.
0: I think I think, I think think it depends. Yeah, and you're right to say that there, there are heaps of African-descended, Turkish, Muslim, Arab-descended people who were born and raised here in Germany and some of them have been uh, challenging some of these power structures through organizations within the university, outside of the university, through the legal and political system. Um, and I, I want to acknowledge and recognize that those groups, uh, like the ESD, uh, ADERFA, that we have a meeting tonight that I'm going to, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and uh, so many other people, um, Asian groups as well, which um, Asian, Asian-German connections are. Complicated, and that history uh, is. I'm glad that people are writing about it um, right now. At the same time, I think the part of what can I, I I cannot always predict what will drive people to act or mm-hmm. feel like they need to act. Mm-hmm. But sometimes, even just the identity itself, of like, okay, I'm I'm black, and I'm treated like this. Uh, I'm racially profiled every day, and that that kind of subjecthood and subject like being is. Is going to create an agent subject like active process by which you start to question what the role of the state is. You start to question the police. <laughs> you start to question what it what Germanists might be if versus someone who might quote unquote blend in who might be British also kind of you know, here European and may not challenge or question why what the role of the police might be in the German context.
2: Yeah, I'm thinking perhaps more along the lines of uh, people who could kind of retreat into the privacy of their own home. When I watched the Berlin Years, I, it was it was like also this this when you hear like Maya talking about how she didn't know that there were other black people in the country, you know, where she was kind of like, well, this just happens to me, and I'm, you know, and just like you kind of like retreat and you kind of feel like this is something that that is burdened upon you, but that you cannot uh, possibly that there's just like no. That you, yeah, I think I, I kind of felt like the sense of no agency and then once, once she sort of connected to other uh, Afro-Germans and realizing that there was like a history and like you were saying, like actually engaging with your own history and engaging with sort of uh, the structural aspect of it. which Something
0: that could happen with the alienation, if, if there is a collective group to act, then yeah, you could be an activist and be may, maybe looking towards empowerment. But even before that, the, her, the racism she experienced definitely meant that she was conscious of something being wrong in that society and not fully really trusting every element of that society which her poetry speaks to in that process and that trauma and eventually you know some of those demons like crept up upon her and which is part of what led to her suicide you know at the end of the day she did not feel fully comfortable and safe in this in this city in berlin in potsdam because it's a deeply German society is deeply racist and that's what it, it does to brilliant people like her, brilliant black women queer, um, like. and so it's this complicated thing like it could eat you away and that alienation could eat you away to the point like what you were describing there's a retreat and it could also be something in which people are actively working towards in these groups and organizations and it can also be exhausting it can it can lead to so many different uh, pathways that we also have to recognize and acknowledge. Yeah, not every not every Black person living in Germany is going to be like, mm. you know, Black Power fists in the air. Let me join the po- <laughs> BPP Berlin. <laughs> yeah, that's just not gonna. That's not a, that's not a reality. Mm. But I think that the the kind of everyday anti-Black racism um, and perceives that as a, your perceived foreigner. It can wear away at people. Mm -hmm. It can wear away at people. Well, also, I think part of the problem, too, is that people... In well, in the German context that I'm familiar, I'm realizing have a narrow definition of what they think racism is, Mm. and Mm. and part of that has to do with it only. Most of the time, I'm thinking only of anti-Semitism and particularly the Nazi era, and that's it. (laughs) Anything else then becomes characterized as like a cultural difference somehow, or you know, oh that 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 religion doesn't really align with uh, what we are familiar with, and I this morning I was finishing up a draft of an article on the early 1990 riots here in Germany against African and Asian descended peoples Mm -hmm. and the the narrative is often, oh, it was mostly the East, or only the East Mm. or former East, and it was in the poorest places Mm. where they just felt threatened by uh, the, the sheer number of migrants, people who are migrants, <laughs> like 20,
2: twenty people. Yes. <laughs> exactly. okay. it's, yeah, and this
0: is a, so the author whose work I was reading, Roger Carapin, looking at policing and protest mm. and such. Um, what he found was actually, um, well, a it was everywhere. So Munich, which was mm. fucking rich as hell, mm. and in the Munich context, what they 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 pushed the the conversation around migration so far to the right that they changed the asylum law to make it. Expensive. Extremely difficult, and it was like Law sixty eight or sixty seven of the Basic Law of Migration that made not that made it nearly impossible for people to migrate, even as asylum seekers. And in Hoyas Verde mm-hmm. and and some of these other places that that had these protests, they they, they were so violent. I'm sure you have read that basically people they were the neo-nazis were using molotov cocktails all kinds of stuff and it was like day like a week long the police did nothing which i don't trust the police but they're like whatever those are our (laughs) friends (laughs) the local residents who weren't neo-nazis like yeah go nazis like and then once they bust these people out i'm like this is fucking what happened in nazi germany they literally evacuated (laughs) forced evacuation of people from black and asian people from their homes And it's just like how, but yet there was the the way that they talked about it, all different cultures, they were too loud. I I read the reports of like, the reason that um, some of these riots started is because there was a party. Mm. These people had a party. The Black and Asian people were like having a goodbye party. The residents thought it was too loud. And then they said, this is why you have to leave. They weren't economically deprived. They weren't like. We have those two parents, is it what you're saying. <laughs> they were like 200 of the, I'm like, I, I was absolutely shocked. I like, never in my life. And so, and the thing is, it's like, it wasn't, co- it was coined throughout the conversation as <laughs> mm-hmm. uh Kotoa, like all these different things to mm. couch around it. But all of those people,
2: they weren't white. <laughs> Yeah, I kind of I I always wonder about this, like because like so, so <laughs> uh, kind of riffing off of what you were just saying in a in a very speculative way. Um, I I I have a Brazilian passport, so I'm always like, what possibility? And obviously, like I'm very privileged to have two passports and all of that. But like, it's always this idea of yeah, if shit goes down in Europe, where would I go? And you kind of have these, you know, you have these. But, I, like, I mean, right now it's just looking terrible, but do you have somewhere you would go Should <laughs> shit goes down in Europe? No,
0: I think part of the problem is, I, well, I don't... I only have one passport, and that's But you have a strong a, passport, I'm guessing. Yes and no, like, the the passport is one that might give me temporary access to a place but it doesn't mean that I have a right to stay so I don't have a right to stay here unless I can prove to the German state um, that A, the job that I do or the labor that I do is not something that Germans themselves can do that's that's a product of you know them wanting, uh, it's a nationalist project to make that claim, the other th- question being that you have to have make a certain amount of money and prove that you are not going to be quote unquote a burden to the state and that the money you do, that I make and my current visa says because I have a visa, I can't just be here. It says that even though I, well, I know I paid taxes like the towards a biotlo skill or all of that, and I can't, I can't, but I can't access those services. So I'm paying, I'm giving to a system that I, which I can't access, which doesn't want to give
2: back, exactly. Like, yeah.
0: And and so it's complicated. Because my black friends and I always talk about this. The one and by black I mean african just from born and raised in the african continent born and raised in europe born and raised in the americas and we're like where do we go and we always think about mythical places like wakanda or but then sometimes we're like okay well what about like ghana or whatever and the thing part of the problem is that um i don't want to be in colonialism those places either because mm-hmm. i don't want to if i especially in the, the languages i speak are the colonialist languages like english and french and you know i've spent time in north africa and i speak arabic but it's like also well i'm not even from there and culturally so how do how do we engage in um, the politics of living in places integrating ourselves in places that are also acknowledging that the struggles especially for places that are um you know dealing with the legacies of, of slavery and colonialism to not reproduce the, the power dynamics of as a like i am quote unquote western <laughs> like i'm from the west unfortunately um and the, like yeah i say unfortunately because it's it is a problem it's like
2: but i'd like to uh yeah i'd like to interject into that just because i i because i feel like it, and, I, and i understand that we are not living in like an utopian worlds and everything but i feel like if, but i feel like I have some problem with like this notion of a, a really original because it's kind of essentialist. Like I, I, know that there is like a politics to it and everything, but I, but I wonder about the, like this this notion of not being, quote unquote, allowed to live somewhere else. Like I, I understand what you're saying about like the power dynamics and all of that, but I, but I also kind of feel that like one of the, like. Like, that that one of, like, the, the reaching towards utopia in my head would kind of be, like, everyone should be able to live everywhere. And that would also mean that he's, like, not respectfully so, obviously, and with certain, like, kind of politics in place. But that uh, people could actually go, like, I, I don't know. I just feel like this notion of saying I'm originally from there is something that I struggle with just because, you know, I'm originally from Brazil, but... To be quite honest, like I, I, I have very little access to my history, for example, and I have very little like to to, to the because it was just erased, and um, I don't I don't feel very connected in that sense, and I feel like like the, the 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 learnings that I've kind of had and the like the places that have shaped me are different from the place I quote unquote originate from, and I kind of feel like a, a lot of people who kind of were forced or otherwise. Uh, Traveled and sort of mobilized and went to diaspora and like that they should be able to build a home wherever they kind of want to and sort of engage with and that the problem lies not with like the place itself but like with the politics that kind of or the power dynamics that sort of come with that so just like it's it's an open question yeah
0: and and that's precisely it the power dynamics that come with that so for me I would feel very uncomfortable. Like settling in on settler colonial territory. This is part of my complication with mm. the US, even though I was born and raised there. Like the land I was born and raised on is Seminole land, oh, Mississippi land. My parents were born on settler colonial state Haiti, which was Arawak land. And in fact, Haiti in Arawak means mountainous region. And so when the black African slaves liberated themselves, they were like, let's pay allegiance to the people whose lives were lost because of the European settlers. And like, you know, that to me is one of the many ways one can honor um, uh, the the land, the space, uh, given the for, the forced migration of that. Like my ancestors were forced to migrate, my parents were forced to migrate. I left <laughs> willingly from the U.S., and it, it it keeps continuing. I think that for me, the question becomes: What is the relationship to other oppressed people if you're going to places that have like a history of settler colonialism, slavery, etc.? Um, are, is one forming an organic kind of solidarity or practice of solidarity once one is there? And how do you engage in a um, collective thing as opposed to, and I hate this term, and this, I hope I don't identify with this expats all just hanging around each other all the time in like Cairo and being like, oh, it's so cosmopolitan, but then never engage with working class Egyptians? Like, this is. This is a thing that has to be actively sought out, and then even just beyond that, it's like the capital that comes with coming from North America and Europe. Mm-hmm. Even if you're like, okay, I'm going to go and live there, it is far more than most people who are living in those countries. And to ignore that, I think it's 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 a bit for me. It would be naive, and I, I even saw that in South Africa when I visited, and I it was a very difficult trip because the yeah, people were like, they were like, you are. A, you're not one of us
2: (laughs) they're literally
0: like you are not one of us you're a foreigner and they could you know people would try to speak closer to me sometimes i was like i don't know that language (laughs) and then they thought i was kidding they're like oh yeah she is a foreigner (laughs) it was just so it was layered and complicated and i think that um yeah in theory people should be able to move and go and everywhere but even the fact that i could decide hey i want to go to Kenya is in itself part part and parcel about where I happen to be born. Mm-hmm. The reverse would, never, would would be difficult. Mm-hmm. The reverse would be difficult, and I think until we actually um, have like borderless spaces where people can move about, then I, I do feel comfortable with suddenly setting a camp or a business or whatever. <laughs> Not that I'm gonna do, yeah, it but, you know, it's just it would be it would be hard, um, and I, I and I I try to be conscious of that. Whereas like i am perfectly fine with taking the resources from europe because europeans are the ones who stole my ancestors <laughs> they stole my ancestors so i deserve it all i deserve all of it from here yeah. My name is Edna Peron, and you are listening to the Decolonization Action Podcast. This was season four, episode four, Everything for Everyone. I would like to thank Moritz Ganson, Sarah Moraes dos Santos Bruce, and aqua Journal. As always, there's a list of references and a bibliography in the show notes. To learn more about the podcast or to find out more information about the people and events reference, please visit www.decolonizationaction.com. You can also visit us and follow us on Twitter at Deck in Action. If you like what you hear, please rate, comment, and share our episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Spotify. Thank you for joining us.